Good morning again, my beloved family and friends in Christ. And to our friends who are visiting with us today, a warm welcome. As a church, our vision is to glorify God by being a disciple-making church that transforms lives with the gospel and love of Jesus Christ. And to help us understand what disciple-making is, we have been looking at the gospel of Mark. We said that Mark tells us that Christ the King has come. And at His first coming, He sets His kingdom in motion. And that God's people are to respond in discipleship by following Christ our King. Disciple making happens when we call Christians to respond to God's grace by following King Jesus you are to act in response to God's grace given to us in Christ Jesus with a life of following Jesus Christ. And that's discipleship. We already spent two messages looking at this. In the first message from Mark 1, we see how as disciples we are to repent, that is to turn from our sin and to have faith in Jesus. That means we are to turn to Jesus, trusting holy in Him, and that we are to be continual repenters, daily fighting our sins, daily turning to Jesus. In the second message from Mark 8, we see that Jesus is our promised King who must suffer on the cross to rescue us from our sins. And as disciples, we are to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. We lose something in order to gain something of great value, which we cannot lose, Christ Jesus. And we can experience the joy of knowing Him. This week we are going to look, continue to look at the Gospel of Mark in Mark 9, verse 30 to 50. We're going to look at another aspect of following Christ as His disciples, which is a disciple welcomes the cause of humble discipleship. But before we get into today's message, let us pray in preparation to the hearing of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, you are God and King. All that we have is from you. And yet, God, we have taken this, your grace, for granted and have cheapened your grace when we sin and pridefully refuse your rule in our lives. Forgive us. And yet, you have continuously shown us amazing grace that in your Son, Jesus, that through the gospel of who Jesus is and what He came to do on the cross, we, self-centered rebels to your rule, can find forgiveness and pardon. Christ has triumphed over the power of sin and we have been brought under your rule and blessing. I pray that as we look into your Bible this morning, I pray in the words of the psalmist that our hearts not be hardened as we hear your voice today. Help me to be faithful to your word, to communicate it clearly, and to exalt you. Help all of us glimpse the beauty of King Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. And then, Lord, enable us to live a life of humble discipleship. We pray this for the sake of your church and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. For those of you who know me, you know that this illustration is long coming. Okay? At some point, I will sneak in a boxing illustration, so here it goes. Former heavyweight boxer James Quick Tillis is an African-American cowboy from Oklahoma, USA. 
He fought out of Chicago in the early 1980s. In 1986, he fought Mike Tyson and was the only man then to have fought the distance with Tyson. He lasted 12 rounds with Iron Mike. And for those of you who know a little bit of boxing, at least you know Mike Tyson, he's supposedly one of the greatest heavyweight boxing champion. So for quick tillers to last 12 rounds, that is quite a feat. As with many boxers, he was proud of his achievements. A story was told of his first day in Chicago after his arrival from Oklahoma. It was his first day as his, of his career as a pro boxing uh, competitor. Quick Tillis recounted, I got off the bus with two cardboard suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago and stopped in front of the Sears Tower. This is the tallest tower in Chicago. I put my suitcase down, looked up at the tower and said to myself, I am going to conquer Chicago. In his mind, he wanted to be a great boxer and achieve recognition. But when he looked down, his suitcases were gone. He ended up losing all his belongings. Today, as we look at Mark 9, we see that the disciples similarly desiring status and recognition. Their hearts were gripped by self-centered pride. The sin of pride has plagued man since the fall. This is our common fallen condition. And we need God to provide a cure. And we see in Mark 9, the Gospel writer Mark instructed Christians that following Christ is in response to His work on the cross. And it means welcoming the cause of following Jesus in humility. What does it mean for us Christians today? This implies that we are to respond to the grace of God in Christ's work on the cross by following Christ in discipleship, marked by a servant-like humility and a glad acceptance of the cross. So let us look at today's Bible passage. If you have your Bibles, I assume as Baptists, you all carry our Bibles with us. So if you have Bibles, please grab your Bibles and follow along with me in the Gospel of Mark. And as we do so, remember that the first eight chapters of Mark tell us who Jesus is. Jesus is the long-promised Saviour King, come in power. And in the second chapter, eight chapters of Mark, Mark covers what Jesus came to do, what Jesus came to do. And it was altogether something unexpected. As uh, we said, as I said in the last sermon in Mark 8, that the disciples with G- Peter's confession of who Jesus is, knows that Jesus is the long-awaited, long-promised King and Deliverer. But they did not understand that our Saviour King is also our suffering servant. When Jesus first predicted His suffering, rejection, death and resurrection, the disciples were astonished and shocked and did not believe Jesus. They had expected a political and military king, not a weak suffering servant. And this is where we pick up the account, with Jesus predicting his death and resurrection the second time. And also when Jesus defines for us what true humility is. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37, that they went from here and passed through Galilee, and he, meaning Jesus, did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, telling them, 
saying to them, The Son of Man, man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they, meaning disciples, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when they were in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took the child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So we see here, we catch up with Jesus and the disciples again. After Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain and his healing of the boy with the unclean spirit. And we see Jesus and the disciples passing through Galilee, which until now was Jesus' main base of ministry. It is in Galilee that he calls the disciples. It is in Galilee that he teaches great crowds. However, Jesus did not want anyone to know that he was there and he passed through quietly. Because you see, Jesus wanted to spend more time teaching his disciples. As Jesus approached the cross, as Jesus nears the crucifixion, he invests more time teaching and discipling his followers. And we see here Jesus predicting his death on the cross for the second time. And this forms the foundation and the motivation for humble discipleship. Jesus says, The Son of Man, meaning Jesus himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Here Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And if we are sensitive to the Old Testament, we kind of hear echoes of this uh, in uh, Daniel 7, chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, where the prophet Daniel tells us of the Son of Man given dominion, glory, and the kingdom by God. And with the disciples' expectation of a political and military king coming to rescue their nation, the disciples at this point must have been sitting up paying attention, wrapped with attention, wanting to hear the next part of what Jesus was going to say. But instead of hearing that Jesus would at this time establish his kingdom through military might, what did they hear instead? They hear that Jesus will be given over to men who will kill him and that he will be resurrected after three days. This doesn't make sense to them. And they were afraid to ask Jesus. But what is worse is not only were the disciples dense and did not understand, they were squabbling over who is the greatest among them. You know, I remember as a young boy playing in the playground. You know, in my time, we played with playgrounds. We don't have an Xbox. Okay? And there was a game we tried to play where we tried to occupy the highest point in this playground structure. I remember we were jostling for position and where we reached the highest point was shout, I am the highest. I am the best. What, what that means is probably you are 10cm higher than the next guy on the structure. Okay? But we wanted to be the best. We wanted to be the highest. You realize in like manner, 
The disciples were jostling for position and status. They were fighting for position and influence. And when they finally reached a house in Capernaum, Jesus pointedly asked them, What were you discussing on the way? It isn't that Jesus did not know what was going on. He knows their heart. He knows our hearts. But Jesus wanted to point out they are wrong. The disciples, like someone caught doing something wrong, kept sheepishly quiet. And Jesus sits down, assuming the posture of a rabbi teacher, and calls the twelve disciples to him. And he teaches them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus does not abolish greatness, but rather he redefines it. If you want to be great and first, you must be willing to be last and to serve others. True greatness is achieved through humility. True humility means not focusing on your status and recognition, but being willing to be treated as last and to serve others. And in case the disciples did not understand what humility is, Jesus proceeds to show them a living parable, a real-life example of what humility is. Jesus takes a child who is in the house, puts them in their midst, and receives the child into his arms. And he tells them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and where receives me receives not me, but him who sends me. You know, most people, when they see the, the child being brought in, they will jump to, to the point and say, Jesus, oh, Jesus means that we are to have childlike faith. Jesus is telling us to have childlike faith. But if we read the text carefully here, Jesus here is not pointing to the faith of the child. Rather, he tells his disciples that they too should receive a child just like Jesus right now receives the child. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Because unlike modern day Singapore, where children are treated as special, okay, in first century Palestine, with its high birth rate and high infant mortality rate, children were largely considered the less important members of society who depended largely on their fathers. So children then were thought of as not having arrived. They were good illustration of the very last. So Jesus, in essence, tells his disciples, to be humble means to be willing to receive the last and least important members of society. And when we do so, we receive Jesus and we welcome God. True humility, my friends, means being willing to be treated as last and to serve others, especially those usually regarded as less important. As a church, are we marked by humility? Are we willing to serve others, even those regarded by many as the least, without regard for our own recognition? Or do we serve with an eye with serving only those who are important so that we may in turn receive some benefits? Is our service marked by our prideful wanting to draw attention to ourselves? One of the surprising trends that happened with the internet 
is that instead of people being more open and connected, people are actually becoming more tribal. To handle the tremendous amount of information available, people are forming subgroups that only read information from within their subgroup. And they do and support things from only within their subgroup. And that leads to them thinking that only their subgroup has the handle on what is best and right. But this is not a modern day phenomenon. We see the disciples behaving likewise. They behave in a way that's in contrast to humility. We read in Mark chapter 9, verse 38 to 41. Jesus said to him, hey, sorry, John said to him, meaning John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Imagine this. Right after Jesus lectures his disciples on humility, he gets John, the impetuous son of thunder. And he comes up to Jesus and you can imagine, almost imagine John stepping up, puffing his chest with a sense of self-importance. You know? Then he thumps his chest and he tells Jesus, You know Jesus, we saw this guy the next street over. And he was casting up demons in your name. Imagine that. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was not part of our group. Did you catch that? John claims that he was not following us. Not that he was not following Jesus. He was not following us. The emphasis was tribal and on themselves rather than on Christ. Do you hear the echo of his spiritual self-importance? John regards his call as a disciple, not as a call to humble service but as an entitlement of special right and exclusion. That only he and his subgroup is right, and not whether how he could serve. But contrary to what John and the disciples expect, and you realize Jesus always does this, Jesus tells the disciples not to stop the independent exorcist. For no one who does a mighty work in my name Will be were able soon afterward to speak evil of me. We see here that the works done in Christ's name is evidence of the call and commission of Jesus. And fellow disciples should be cautious and not think badly of those who bear the fruit of works done in Jesus' name. Jesus continues and tells his disciples that for the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus here is being more inclusive than his disciples. The making known of Jesus' name is more important than the disciples' prideful distinctions. And Jesus, in one of his rare occasions, calls himself the Christ and reminds the disciples that they belong to him. They belong to him. And finally, Jesus ends his instructions here by reminding the disciples that God will reward the humblest act of kindness, even the giving of a cup of cold water 
to the least. By doing so, Jesus helps the disciples to combat their prideful self-regard by firstly reminding them of their identity, that they belong to Him. And just as God will reward the humblest act of kindness done to them, the disciples likewise should seek to humbly serve others, especially the least among them. We see here actually Jesus repeating the same idea of humble service that was introduced in verse 37. The kingdom of God is much bigger than our experience of it. You see, as a church, we should be unambiguous and distinctive in our proclamation of Christ and His gospel, but tolerant of those who differ in their expression of these truths. We should be firm in our essential convictions of the gospel, but we should be willing to allow for different expressions of the key distinctives as we live it out in our context. If we insist our subgroup way of expressing the living out of the power of the gospel is the only right way that please God, then we may need to ask ourselves whether we are doing this out of gospel convictions or is it out of sense of spiritual pride? Jesus continues to instruct his disciples in the following verses, which on first look appears to be a random series of verses that talk about sin, salt, and fire. And as I was preparing this text, studying this text in the last week, I was scratching my head when I first read them. But remember, the Gospels are written not purely as sequential historical accounts. They are real history about Jesus, but they are written to convey certain theological emphasis, certain points that the author wants to tell us. This means that the different accounts are arranged such to tell us a theological truth. Especially for Mark, the arrangement of his stories interpret other stories that he tells, and his sections are written to interpret other sections of the Gospel. So we see in the previous two paragraphs, we just covered, the previous two paragraphs we just covered, Jesus defined what humility is, and he gives an example of the disciples who acted in contrast to humility. So while the next section talks about sin in general, but I think it also addresses the sin of spiritual pride specifically. So let us read Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 50. Jesus continues to teach his disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how would you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Jesus here gives a sober warning against stumbling and humbling and harming the faith of simple and ordinary disciples and causing them to sin. It would be far better 
for such a one to have a heavy stone tied around his neck and to be heaved and thrown into the sea. Jesus, in graphic word picture, tells us about the seriousness of God's wrath against spiritual pride. Jesus then shifts from warning against you in your pride causing others to sin to warning against endangering yourself in your pride. In the following three pairs of verses, you see it's paired up, Jesus warns his disciples, if their hand or foot or eye causes them to sin, it would be better if they remove it, rather than go into the unquenchable fires of hell. It's better for them to be crippled, lame, and be blind in one eye than to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is, is better. That is to face eternal judgment and separation from God. It is better that they kill their pride than face God's judgment. Jesus here does not literally tell his disciples it's better to, better to mutilate themselves than sin. But rather, Jesus is signaling to them the great worth of the kingdom of God which is far better, which far surpasses that you and I think that is of incalculable value. So what Jesus is telling is to lose the thing which you think is valuable so that you will not lose what is actually of great worth. So lose your sinful pride for self-recognition and status so that you will not lose what is of great value, entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus concludes his teaching on humility by telling his disciples, for everyone will be salted with fire. Here, salt and fire brings to mind the tabernacle sacrificial imagery in Leviticus. Salt was to accompany all Israelite sacrifices. As Jesus' disciples, they should expect trials as part of the course of discipleship. We should expect to make sacrifices too, as well as his disciples. And as we stay the course, we will be like salt in that we will be distinct from others. When you have salt in your food, you can distinctively taste it. That's what it means. If we stay the course as disciples, we will be distinctive, distinct from others. If not, as Jesus wants, if as disciples we lose our distinction, here being the mark of humility, we will be fit only to be thrown away. And being humble, if the disciples are humble, they will be at peace with one another and not as we see earlier in this passage in verse 34, pridefully fighting with one another for status and recognition. Many of the policies in Singapore employ a carrot and stick approach. There's a system of penalties and rewards that shape our social schemes. As Singaporeans, we know that, right? Likewise, in battling spiritual pride and pursuing humility, Jesus warns us of the penalty that awaits sinful spiritual pride and the rewards that come to the humble. All of us are proud. There are no exceptions. It's part of our fallen nature. Even those in full-time ministry, we battle pride daily. The next time you're angry over something, do a hard check. What are you angry about? Are you angry over the fact that you did not get your way? Are you angry over the fact 
that you did not get your due recognition? Are you angry because you did not get your perceived entitlement? We all have to confess that we are proud. Then the next question is, are you willing to sacrifice your prideful desires? Will you give them up for the inestimable rewards of joy in the presence of God in His kingdom? Jesus, through the cross, unmasked and disarmed the power of sinful pride by a complete reversal through self-sacrifice and service. The cross removes both the penalty and power of sin over us. What then can be our response in battling pride and pursuing humility? What then should be our response? Firstly, firstly, as a disciple, you battle pride by understanding your identity in Christ and what He has done for you on the cross. You battle pride by understanding your identity in Christ and what He has done for you on the cross. As His disciples, you belong to Christ. Christ's work on the cross not only demonstrated true humility, as we see Paul describing this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, but Christ also broke the power of cancelled sin. Sin has been conquered, and we are no longer in the grip of sinful pride. And that is why Mark tells us the response of humble discipleship right after Right after, it tells us about Christ and His work on the cross. Discipleship comes as a response to Christ's work on the cross. And when we trusted in the gospel, we are joined to Christ. And as Paul states in Philippians 2.5, we have a new identity, a new mind in Christ. And therefore, we can have this new attitude of humility. So battle pride by first knowing your new identity in Christ, and then live it out, live obediently, live it out. Secondly, as a disciple, you pursue humility by not thinking less of yourself, but by thinking of yourself less through thinking of Christ more. Let me repeat that. You pursue humility by not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less through thinking of Christ more. We often hear the Christian saying, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is good and right, but I humbly submit that it's incomplete. I mean, have you tried, ever tried thinking of yourself less? I mean, right now, all of you think of yourself less. It doesn't work, right? Once we start thinking of ourselves less, our thoughts and focus turn to me, turn to ourselves. Once you turn your thoughts to self, even if you want to pursue humility, you'll be worried about what you say or do, whether what you say or do is perceived by others as being humble. So all you end up is actually wanting to build up your image of being seen as humble, all the while taking pride of this image, that you're a humble person. What a contradiction. The solution is outside ourselves. Not only is the power of pride broken by the cross, growth in humility is sustained by the cross. As you turn your eyes and focus on the great value of Christ, as you remember the grace of God and the love of God in Christ Jesus and Christ's work on the cross for us, 
you take your eyes off your own self-centered needs and prideful concern. You glory in your Redeemer. And in doing so, you kill pride and you grow in humility. We see in today's Bible passage, the Gospel writer Mark instructed Christians that following Christ is in response to His work on the cross. And it means welcoming the cause of following Jesus in humility. And what does it mean for you and me today? It means that we are to respond to the grace of God in Christ's work on the cross by following Christ in discipleship, marked by a servant-like humility and gladly accepting the cause. So are you so gripped by the grace of God through Christ's work on the cross that you'll be willing to follow Christ our King in humble discipleship, serving the least among us? without seeking recognition. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who unmasked and disarmed the power of sinful pride in our lives through his self-sacrifice and service. Thank you for the cross, which removes the power of sin and evil over us, and that now we can live free from conquered sin. Lord, we thank you for this, the gospel. I pray for all of us here that this truth will dwell in our hearts, and grow in us a love for Christ Jesus. Set our love for Jesus and Jesus alone. Continue to give us transforming grace as we as a church seek to follow Jesus in humble discipleship by serving others, especially the least in our midst. So in doing so, we will magnify the name of Jesus. In Christ's name, Amen.